start. Okay. Thank you all for coming. I am going to talk about the Mithras liturgy. I was intending on reading it out loud, but I don't have time tonight after all. So I am going to describe what it is that got me interested in this Mithras liturgy and why I find it to be so absolutely fascinating. And so am I still on, Trevor? You are. You are. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to describe why this Mithras liturgy is just so dadgum blasted interesting. When you read it, it is foreign. Uh, you, when I first read it, I had to toss up my hands and ask, what is this? I mean, the reason they call it the Mithras Liturgy, it's a modern name. It's a modern designation. Uh, oh, thank you, Trevor. That's a, an excellent picture of the Mithras Liturgy right there. The, uh, the ancient Greek magical papyri, now they found we have in the particular Betts translation that I have, which is probably the most well-known public uh, text on the papyri, the uh, fragments are 131 of them now. They added the uh, bilingual Coptic texts to Betts's translation, which just gives us more. In antiquity, according to Betts, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of full books of these kinds of writings and materials. And it was just the John Q. public, everyday normal Joe, who was interested in invoking the gods for whatever help they needed, whether they wanted to convince a man to fall in love with herself, or if they needed a charm or some kind of a physical help to win a race, or if they needed to find someone who was lost, just all kinds of everyday trivial stuff that when you read most of these fragments, you go, seriously? I mean, that is so mundane. But to these people, it was their everyday life. A lot of them are just basically a paragraph. The Mithras liturgy is five pages. It is the most complete one, which is extremely fortunate for us. We, if pure dumb luck that it survived. Thank goodness it did. And the reason it is called the Mithras liturgy is because uh, now, now all of these were found in Egypt, and but they ranged all over the Roman Empire. And mostly in Egypt is where their popularity really did preside. But uh, they date from 200 BC about to about 580. So for 700 years, we have people and from all walks of life, mostly the poorer people, because there's a lot of uh, spells or charms they drew uh and i didn't think to get a picture of this but they drew the different um 
letters of the vowels into figurate shapes like triangles, squares, circles. Some of them are in spirals. And what they were doing is combining the various magical combinations and techniques of sacred geometry with particular magic words. And there are so many magic words. Let me read a small selection here. The Mithras Liturgy is the PGM 4, and it's 475 through 829. And let me look at this real quick. Okay. He's, he's talking about he has an initiate with him. And he says there are certain particular types of uh, opening, beginning rituals that they have to perform in order for them to begin to get the capability to see the deity, right? And so he's talking about the, uh, the disc of God, my father. And he says, when the wind starts to blow, put your finger up to your mouth and say, silence, silence, silence. Symbol of the living incorruptible God. Guard me, silence. Nechthir, Thanmalu. They start pronouncing these they're, they're either magical names. Some of them are palindromes. We're, we're still trying to figure out what all these interesting words mean, and we're not quite sure yet. Some of them they have discovered are uh, a variant spelling with the, uh, with the different Egyptian deities, say, or something to that effect. There are some... I want to find this one because it is just so fantastically crazy. It's nuts. I'm not even going to be able to pronounce this correctly. <laughs> I have no idea how to pronounce this. I will give it my best shot. He begins to invoke the sun god. Now, Mithras was a solar deity. And you can see here this uh, particular representation of Mithras on the bull here. Uh, and I've got another one I'll show you a little later where he is um, personified as a person, right? Well, he is also associated with the sun. So in this particular liturgy, they're trying to invoke Mithras to show up and give them some information, give them some revelation. And the intent of this liturgy is to give them an ascension is to get them, the, the principle was to ascend to the outer edge of the universe and to go through some doors in the sky so that they could make it further and further into their true home, which was the cosmos out there in the, uh, the ocean of the heavens. And so they're invoking many names. And he said, oh, Firewalker, and the word after it is Pentitaruni, light maker, Semesalam, fire breather, Sirenfu, fire feeler, Iao. Now they invoke some very similar popular uh, deity names in other of the mysteries. Io, Iao is a very powerful uh, deity name in several ancient mysteries. It is a form, I believe it is the Gnostic form of uh, Yah, 
which is a shortened uh, form of Jehovah. But the Mithras liturgy is a syncretistic phenomenon, just like Mithraism, meaning that, uh, as, as I'll read a little bit here from this other text, they pulled in elements from uh, the Mesopotamian materials, from the Persian materials, after when they entered the Hellenistic age, after the death of Alexander the Great, they were bringing in all of these various elements and coordinating them and combining them. And so some of these names are combinations of various different deities. And that's why <laughs> sometimes we can't recognize them, man. They're really interesting that way. Beautiful light, Azai. Aeon, Achba, so on and so forth. But they do these magical names open for me. Now get this one. Proprofigi, Emetheri, Morio Motrifilba. Oh, what the hell is all that about? You know, you, you kind of go, really? That's interesting. They do this throughout the entire corpus of the magical papyri. And it is especially prominent in the Mithras liturgy. And in some instances, there are entire paragraphs of chanting various different vowel combinations, which is remarkably interesting. And uh, the theme with this Mithraism as an essential uh, as an essential religion, I'll put it, is the idea, we know that there was a first supper. And in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the story unfolds in a garden called Eden. We're familiar with that. In that version of the myth, a serpent persuades humans to eat the fruit of the sacred tree of knowledge, yeah? And the theme is bringing man and God together with this consumption of fruit. In the patriarchal reformulation of Judaism, with its morbid dread of the power of the goddess, the story of the First Supper was revised. However, even in that version, we understand the jealous God observes that the food made humans more like himself. Gave them that knowledge of good and evil, right? And the wisdom of the angels. So su substances are now called entheogens. And this is combining the ancient Greek adjective, entheos, meaning inspired or to be animated with deity, and with the verbal root in Genesis for becoming. So the idea is it signifies something that causes the divine to reside within one. And when used in rituals, entheogens can be seen as sacramental substances whose ingestion provides a communion and a shared existence between the human and the divine. In the context of ceremony and ritual, the individual becomes at one with God. This is the, the famous theme of atonement. And that is why I'm so grateful that uh, Dr. McDonald is here, because I was reading Jan Kott's book. He's a Polish uh, classicist. I don't believe he's alive right now. Uh, he wrote a book called Eating the Gods. And when I read through his, 
his materials, it began to dawn on, something began to dawn on me, wait a minute, there is something going on here. I wonder if this is what it means. And then I ran into Dr. McDonald's book, The Dionysian Gospel. Now, Dr. McDonald has been one of my foremost readable, uh, he's a classicist and a biblical scholar, and I have read absolutely everything he publishes. And it, it has just opened up the whole dimension, not only of the context of the classical tradition, the Greeks, but also of the context. What excited me was I realized we now have other sources for the New Testament authors that they also brought in and utilized the, the technical term is mimesis, where actually several of the gospel writers in the New Testament imitated these various types of classical literature. Homer, Iliad and Odyssey, Virgil the Aeneid, and now Dr. MacDonald has also found the Euripides gospel in the gospel of John. Well, this type of Mimesis, this type of borrowing and combining of stories in order to bring out a specific uh, element, if you will, this is Mithraism. Um, th this is so beautifully Mithraic because the dating of Mithraism, now archaeologically, uh, the newest archaeology out that I'm familiar with at this point uh, dates back to 2019, so I'm sure there's more upgraded materials right now, but the dating of the places where the Mithraists met, um, Trevor, do you have that one of the Mithraei that you can put up? Just any one of the other ones? Yeah, this one. This is a beautiful one right here. The, the Mithraei, uh, they were grottos if you will the theory the theory is they were made to imitate caves right and so these were oh 70 to 75 feet long they were 20 feet wide and you can see in this picture on both sides there's a stone bench and then you see that uh, central altar type looking thing and then toward the end there now this particular statue has been pretty damaged this carving of uh, mithras with the bull but you can clearly see this is the, uh, the Mithras bull, and I've got a, another picture of Mithras to show you here in a little while. In some of these, they have found on the ceilings that they're covered with stars. And so the symbolism is, is a cave, but it's the cosmic cave. It's not just an earthly cave that the Mithraea uh, are symbolizing, even though it is because, once again, interestingly enough, the cave is a gigantic symbol for, mean, meaning it's widespread, I mean, for the goddess's womb, because this is where creation comes from. So in it's kind of a double symbolism, and it's almost a paradox because it's a cave, and yet it is the entire cosmos that they are instructed in their initiation in these places. 
and Dr. McDonald's book on the Dionysian gospel, the main keys to recognizing that this gospel of John is mimicking, and, and this isn't plagiarism. Um, in antiquity, and, and Dr. McDonald has actually held various different conferences where a confluence of scholars will come together in various, using various different literatures, demonstrating by example that they would take a writing and they would deliberately pull the story out of that writing, and then they would either flip it or they would manipulate it and, and change it up just a little bit in order to enhance their own story. And in fact, we now know Virgil, his entire Aeneid is a mimetic takeoff from the entire corpus from Homer, both the Odyssey and the Iliad. And he structured the Aeneid that way. In this Mithraism, they did the same things in their acquisition. And how they did it was they said, well, let me read this to you. In myth, now, now this is a, nobody's going to stand on the back of a bull like that and stab him, right? We're looking at a symbolism. Uh, and in fact, um, Trevor, can you get to that next? Don't we have one more uh, of Mithras slaying the bull? I thought I did. The colored one. Not that one, not that one there, right there. Now, what they did too in antiquity, and they followed this tradition for quite a while. They, I mean, some of the carvings of these are so exquisite and elegant. This one they would carve in stone. This one they painted, and it's a it's a very interesting color symbolism. Again, we have the color symbolism. The in Mithraism, we've got the number symbolism we have the cosmological symbolism where the actual constellations are symbolic because they're tying us into the cosmos in this magnificent thing and in myth the whole theme is the transformation of consciousness as an integral element in the basic story of either the hero or the heroine who encounters pathways of communication between the human and an otherwise invisible realm. And such experiences are viewed as part of the ongoing renewal of the community's spiritual well-being as well. So what they were doing is, through their initiations, through their rituals, they were applying them to their group so that the group could gain cohesion as well as a group get to the invisible world while still in this life. And this has very many parallels, man, with, I mean, it has parallels with the, uh, Eleusinian mysteries, and it's got parallels with the Kabaroi. It's got parallels with Attis and Kibbele. It, it's, pretty, it, it's pretty amazing. It ensures for the group a perpetual contact with the wisdom and the benevolence of the spiritual world.
And this happened from antiquity, from 600 BC on. Uh, we, we know that uh, Plato was, was uh, initiated into the Eleusinian mysteries. We know that Pythagoras was. The Orphics were very heavily involved. We know the Persian Magi had... Uh, through the uh, through the silk trade routes back to the far east, those routes uh, mixed the various cultures. It began with the northern Indo-European uh, migrations from the north before they split, and the one went east. The one branch went east and became the Vedic Indian tradition, and the other branch came down south into the. Mycenaean and the Greek tradition, but there, it's all uh, from the northern sphere, the the northern Indo-European group. Parmenides gives an account of his soul's journey to the gateway between night and day, where he met a goddess, and this goddess imparts her teaching of the Gnostic version, the vision, I mean, sorry. Now in the liturgy, uh, let's see, get back to the first page here. In the liturgy, the very first thing we read is this person who wrote this, he starts it off very properly. Just like Homer, just like Virgil, just like Porphyry. He says, be gracious to me, O providence and psyche. He invokes the goddess. He invokes the muses. Because, of course, as the daughters of Zeus, the nine muses were the source of the inspiration of the poets, the writers, so on and so forth, right? In fact, I was going to invoke those before I started my task here. Oh, my. Anyway, and, and uh, Betts notes that. He says, ah, very interesting that he begins by this invocation to the goddess. This is a, I'll, I'll call it a dimension that today we moderns have just, for lack of a better way to describe this, we've lost this uh, this angle, this dimension, ours is such a focus on the patriarchal that we, we in the symbol of the yin and the yang, we're out of balance, more or less, as a society, as a world, perhaps the, the Far East, the Buddhism, the Vedantas, the Tibetans and all those, and the Chinese, maybe they can help us get the balance back. Here in the West, uh, we don't quite have that balance yet. But time and again in these ancient mysteries, the goddess plays a gigantic role. Homer invokes the muses in both the Odyssey and the Iliad. And of course, I'm assuming a single author of Homer. I'm aware of the scholarship where they say it was a school of Homer and so on and so forth. That doesn't take away the thesis. Virgil also invokes the muse. This was a very important theme in the ancient materials. In fact, the very Greek myth of Demeter and her daughter Persephone. You remember Hades comes along. Persephone is out picking flowers out in the field, right? And all of a sudden the earthquakes open. Hades comes up 
grabs Persephone, abducts her to the underworld, and Demeter is completely shattered. She is, when she finds out that Zeus and Hades planned that, <laughs> she got so mad, she said, forget about it. I'm not going to water any of the earth. I'm not going to plant any of the earth. Let it all die. And she sat in her mourning and she said, nope. Now, this presented a problem for the gods because they needed the humans. This is myth, remember. But there is a symbiotic relationship between the gods and the humans, right? So it got to the point where Zeus recognized that if she doesn't get things going again, uh, we're not going to have any worshipers left on earth. So he finally relents. And so in her joy, it is the goddess who gave us the mystery at Eleusis. She is the one, not the father god, the mother. That's a really important context within Mithraism as well. So, boy, I'm on a ramp, but that, that's an important theme. And I, and I probably do play up the goddess a lot because it's so difficult within uh, our Mormon uh, context. Yes, they say there was a heavenly mother, but that's all they do is they just say, yeah, well, there was a heavenly mother. There's so much more to her than the way we were raised to believe, right? And uh, so the, the great Eleusinian mystery was a group initiation, just like the Orphic initiation became, just like the Attic initiations, etc. And it was a shamanic type initiation in which participants journeyed the other world in order to experience personally the opened pathway between the realms. And this involved a psychoactive agent, which was mixed in their kikion, derived from ergot, it was a fungus that grows on the grains. And this mystery was enacted for 2,000 years. That's a long time. This was very popular. And absolutely everybody went to it. This is the Eleusinian. Well, these other mysteries were basically essentially spin-offs, <laughs> adaptations as later cultures evolved and developed, right? So the Dionysus, the Dionysus he mentions here, his most enduring gift, of course, was the theater, but he also was known as a god of wine. And this, the Gospel of John makes a big deal about Christ changing the water to wine. Dr. McDonald has discussed that is certainly a key red flag right there showing us, aha, this is a Dionysian uh, influence here. The uh, and I'm working my way into this. Um, yeah, we can we can leave this one up, can't we? Uh, I think I had another one. I really want this one for the color when I get to this point. However, I don't want to lose the others either, Trevor. 
So we can see that many of the most significant developments of the Western cultures were inspired by a central spiritual ecstatic wisdom that included access to altered states through the use of entheogens. And what do I mean by an entheogen? Oh, here Mithraism went through seven different uh, initiation steps, culminating in an ecstatic vision in which you journeyed into a sacred realm where one experiences the entire pattern of the universe. And that is definitely what this Mithras liturgy does. And he describes that step by step as you produce, as you intone the sacred names, as you intone the vowels, as you are working your way through your vision, and you've called upon the various deities, the pole lords come along. And I will explain that in just a little bit. Uh, and, and there are seven goddesses who are the seven goddesses of fate that shows up in this Mithras liturgy. And then you intone each one of them. You welcome them. You acknowledge them. And then the seven pole lords show up and you acknowledge them and you intone their names. As, as a reverential way of, of, of allowing them to welcome you into their realm, right? You're welcoming them, but actually they're welcoming you. And then the final vision is the great magnificent deity who was the description in the liturgy is of Mithras, but he is so much grander than all 14 of those other deities because he is, he has the hind of the bull thrown over his shoulder. And that hind of the bull, this is the Egyptian astronomical description of the Big Dipper. And the idea is with the Big Dipper, of course, of course, uh, it points, the Little Dipper points to the Big Dipper tail and it rotates in the perfect circle and the axis of the universe points up through that great dipper right well that axis it is mithras who is rotating that axis but that is the entire cosmos so they knew about the procession of the equinoxes they applied their deity mithras to that power which was the most powerful thing in the cosmos because it rotated the entire cosmos. And actually, this, this depiction here with Mithras on the bull, they are representing, and it's a, it's a symbolic pictorial form, but this is the axis mundi. You can see that they are between the moon and the sun, and then the other cosmological constellation constructs in it. The dog is Canis Minor. The snake is Serpens, which goes in between the two solstice markers, and the bull is Taurus, and Mithras is the constellation Perseus. It's very interesting how that all puts together. Let me get over to, I'm going to skip here heavily, man. I hate it when I have to skip, but I have to skip. Well, they talk about the 
Now in Mithras, he's slaughtering the bull. This is a mythological representation, however, because the whole thing that cements the entire Mithraic initiation together is the sacred meal. Now, this dovetails beautifully with Dr. McDonald's book. That's why I keep emphasizing this book. I loved all of his books, but this Dionysian gospel, oh my goodness. He really, between Dr. McDonald and Jan Cott, and uh, the book I'm getting my information from tonight, and I had like a dozen books set out. And I was going to flip through several of the books, and that would have just been messy. So I've condensed it down for now into this one book. And this is Carl Ruck's book, Mushrooms, Myths, and Mithras. Very impressive collection of materials. So far as I'm aware, I believe this was 2011. Dr. Dr. McDonald's was a little bit later. These two dovetail so beautifully with the theme of the sacred meal. The question is, what does it have to do with this symbolism that we're looking at right now? With the sun and the moon, who are these two dudes on either side of this guy killing this bull? One's holding something up, one's holding something down. They're, they represent torches. I will get to that. The theme is the bull is symbolic of the Mithraic Eucharistic meal, okay? But this is not a normal bull. This is the cosmic bull. His meat and blood are not beef. It's something different. And I want to get to that. I'm skipping ahead and skipping back. Sorry. Here we go the supposed menu. Now, it's interesting. These, these Mithraic mysteries, they are emphasizing that there were between 20 and 30, and it was for men only. Sorry, don't mean to be sexist, but anciently, the people who were attracted to this Mithraic uh, initiation were mostly the Roman soldiers, uh, merchants were also uh, mercenaries, pirates were very heavily involved, and in fact, emperors. The Roman emperor tradition for 300 years, all of the emperors, according to the some scholarship I've read, were initiated into this Mithraism. Now, Nero... And you can read about so many of these emperors in uh, Suetonius, the 12 Caesars. Nero was just a crud. I, I mean, what a schmuck. He was horrible. He was a terrible human being. He is the only Roman emperor. He was so bad that he didn't go through the Eleusinian mysteries. Because when you go to the Eleusinian mysteries, see, you had to speak Greek. And you cannot have committed murder. <laughs> but Suetonius, in his description of Nero, I mean, by the time by the time he decided he was going to get involved with the mysteries, he had already started killing off his family, his mother-in-law, his sister-in-law, his brother, his brother-in-law, his son-in-law, whoever he could kill that he got paranoid about, right? So he was a very heinous man. Well, he chickened out from going through the Eleusinian mysteries. But all of the other emperors did, and they had what uh, 
Pliny, in his natural history, I do believe, said was, no, it wasn't Pliny, it was someone else. Pliny does describe this magic meal that Nero uh, had with Tiridates I. He was the Armenian king. Nero had conquered Armenia, and Tiridates came to uh, do obeisance to Nero. And he greeted Nero as the new crowned Mithras. And, and to enjoy that company, they actually, Nero dressed up like the sun. And he had his great big sun crown with, see this sun crown in this picture? That was, that was one of Nero's crowns when Tiridates came. And they, uh, Tiridates initiated him into the Mithraism, but he didn't quite make Nero a magus. It failed. His initiation failed for some reason, man. <laughs> kind of interesting, that. So this, this banquet now... This was a full-blown feast. I mean, this was a huge meeting for these 20 to 30 people in these Mithrae. Um, and it is symbolic. What it did is it brought Sol and Mithras in a cave, a cosmic cave. And the depictions of the Last Supper in Christian art also show this idea of a banquet meal, and, the, and they usually just depict, they depict other foods, but they only talk about the, the, uh, the bread and the water, or the bread and the wine. In some cases, Justin Martyr described, oh, this is so interesting. Justin Martyr says the sacramental meal in the Christian, that he was an early Christian uh, apologist, right? He says the sacramental meal was not common bread and water, uh, but it was symbolic communion with the deity. And Dr. MacDonald in his Euripides, the, the Dionysian Gospel, describes the, uh, the Dionysian meal was to make you one with the deity by ingesting the deity. Well, Carl Ruck says the early Christians had that concept, but they didn't, they, they more or less got it from the Mithraic theme. And here's that theme. Justin Martyr, this food is called among us the Eucharist, which the wicked devils have imitated in the mysteries of Mithras commanding that the same thing be done. So bread and a cup of water are made, are made flesh and blood with certain incantations of the ones who are being initiated. Very interesting here. The final initiatory item the sacred Mithraic, Mithraic meal was a consciousness-altering liquid served in a riton. Now, a riton was a drinking cup in the shape of a bull's horn, right? And the ancient Greek shaman Epimenides of Crete, he invented the famous paradox about lying Cretans, you know. 
He was supposed to fall asleep for 57 years in a cave. I mean, wow, talk about a snooze, right? <laughs> 57 years, man. During this time, however, while his body was asleep in the cave, he was free to wander throughout the cosmos. And then he came back, right? So these miraculous feats of shamanism were accomplished with a special herbal compound that he kept stored in a bull's hoof. Interesting. The bull sacraments are then obviously a metaphor for the actual food of the Eucharistic meal, like the transubstantiated bread and wine of the Christian communion, the blood and body of their Lord. So if there is one unifying constant among these religions and pretty much all of the ancient mysteries and this is why i'm using this uh i'm basically using this uh mithras liturgy as a jumping point to search and explore all of the other ancient mysteries and so the common denominator here is the ritualized sacred meal or at least a portion of it, as in Eleusis. And this meal induced an intense spiritual experience for the initiates. Now, we find this theme in the Vedic, in the Mazdean, in the Isianic, in the Orphic, the Hellenic, the Christian religions. The central mystery revealed to and experienced by the prepared celebrant was the mythos. It was a kind of an indoctrination which was guiding the mystai through a profound spiritual trance during which the story becomes reality. And they do that through this sacrament, what they call the sacrament. And now if you would go, Trevor, to the uh, that uh, Amanita mushroom, would you? Pretty please, thank you. Yeah, it's a fly agar, Amanita mushroom, Amanita muscara. Now this, this particular interpretation now, uh, in the 19, what was it, 60s, Carl Ruck and G. Gordon, or Gordon Wasson and uh, others, showed that the Eleusinian mystery was based upon this mushroom. Um, it, it was an entheogenic uh, experience. And of course, in the 1960s, with the hippie movement and all that, it did not go over well at all. In fact, Dr. Ruck got marginalized pretty much for his whole career. He kept researching. He kept publishing. I mean, he didn't get completely wiped out. But now he has several books to his credit where he has spent an entire lifetime, 65 years, much like Dr. McDonald with his fabulous theme with the mimesis. Dr. Ruck has been sharing this theme of the entheogenic basis of a spiritual experience. And it is the ingestion that gives you the unification with the deity. In all of the uh, ancient traditions, their myths, etc. And so how he 
how he characterizes this is remarkable. This, this is fabulous. I'm going to show you some symbolism here. This just, this knocks me out every time I read it, man. The Amanita muscaria mushroom is characterized by the red top. You can see that here with white, speckled white upon a white leg or a stipe. Yeah, that's very clear here. Thus, Mithras and the bull. Now, can you go back to the Mithras and the bull, Trevor? Pretty please, kind sir. There's another Amanita muscara. Here we go. Now take a look at this color scheme. This is critical. Mithras and the bull represent this distinctive combination of color because in the hero myth, the hero shaman acquires attributes of the god and the sacramental entheogen that unites the three of them together. That is to say, all three, the shaman, the entheogen, the mushroom, and the deity here, Mithras, is symbolized as the mushroom, Amanita Muscara. That is part of this symbolism. The white bull, his, his head being pulled back and his neck looking straight up, that represents the stipe of the mushroom. Mithras, as, as well as Perseus, is always pictured with his red Phrygian cap, the red cap of the mushroom. And his color costume is red. And his cap, and it doesn't show here, cap, I mean his cape, it is usually blue. This looks like a real, real light baby blue, but there are several depictions where his cape has stars on it, kind of like the ceiling in those Mithrae. When they looked up, they saw the stars because they were entering into the cosmos. So this, this is remarkable because it basically, uh, this is very <laughs> down to earth, right? I mean, it's a representation of a mushroom. So that's pretty down to earth. And yet it elevates us. Notice the bull. He's looking up here at this moon figure, right? In, and I didn't get the one found. There's another depiction of the taroctony, they call this, uh, where Mithras is looking back at the sun and the sun's eyes are meeting his. So he's taking you to the cosmos in the constellations, which is what the Mithras liturgy itself describes. It describes when you ascend, you begin to see the gods who are rising in the sky and the gods who are setting because the ascension takes them up into the constellations and then they go later through the further door to get to the edge of the universe, right? So it's bringing them from Earth up into the cosmos, and that is what a mushroom does when it's properly used in the sacred meal. That's the real Eucharist. Fabulous stuff. And no, I'm not advocating get, starting to get into drugs. That's not the point here. I'm describing the ancient Mithraic rituals and ideas, which is remarkable because 
the shaman, the entheogen, and the deity, they are one divine botanical identity. They're all the mushroom. Very interesting here. Which is also the essential ritual purpose of the sacramental communal meal. That the initiates, all 30, 20 to 30 people in the Mithrae, every one of them get to partake of that meal in this banquet, like we have in the Roman historians' descriptions of the emperors having their, quote, magic meal. It was magic because what it did is it opened them up to the further dimension that they wouldn't have had. And while I'm thinking about this, I'm going to break up my thought. The foods we eat give us this three-dimensional physical dimension, right? I mean, here we are, right? We eat a steak. You know, I had a ribeye last Sunday, right? Sometimes I eat soup. Sometimes I eat uh, a BLT, a, a, a sandwich where I use grain. And sometimes I eat bacon and eggs. This food gives us our physical three-dimensional world. The sacramental food opens up the mind into a different type of dimension, right? So you are what you eat is quite literal. Fascinating, isn't it? So let me keep going here. Because the way he puts this is just so, he, he, he describes it better than I can. So the Mithras bowl configuration here that we're looking at on the screen right now is a pictorial personification of the mushroom at the moment that the mushroom is being harvested. Okay, so this kind of helps us appreciate, okay, well, that's why, that's why Mithras is on top of this bull, and he's stabbing down and killing the bull. The symbol here is whacking the mushroom, right? That's the idea here. Very interesting. What does this mean? Here's one interpretation. There is a flow of cosmic energy through the configuration with Mithras looking up toward the head of the sun, rising behind the bull and shedding its rays directly at the God's eyes. While the bull with his arch neck pulled back forcefully, usually vertical like the white stipe of the muscaria mushroom, looks up directly toward the moon's head descending in front of it. There's the picture. That's the one I couldn't find. I apologize. Pretty amateur hour here, but you can see Mithras looking back at the sun. 
So there is, and the bull is looking at the moon. So there is a movement here. There is a flowing in direction. This is the kind of the, the theme that he wants to, to get across, right? The reason this is important is because this flow of light or energy, as it were, through the tarochthony, this indicates the cosmic axis. This indicates the gateway to another universe. And in the Mithras liturgy, this is the whole point, man. This is it. He says, draw in breath from the rays, drawing up three times as much as you can. So you're really, you are really inhaling here. And you will see yourself being lifted up and ascending to the height so that you seem to be in midair. You will hear nothing either of man or of any other living thing, nor in that hour will you see anything of mortal affairs on earth, but rather you will see all immortal things. For in that day and hour, you will see the divine order of the skies. See, this is what I was just saying about now. Now he's had his ascension. He's up here in the ceiling of the Mithrae in the stars. He's in the stars. And he says, you will see the divine order, the presiding gods rising into heaven and others setting. And the course of the visible gods will appear through the disk of God, my father. So he is describing this process. It is brought about through the story of Mithras sacrificing the bull, which is a metaphor for harvesting the mushroom. And with their particular special mix with the, I mean, they didn't eat this thing raw. They mixed it in with liquid. Uh, there were, we have discovered honey, uh, drinks, uh, a mix of honey and milk, a mix of various different types of fruits, different plants, etc. But the mushroom was because they had to, uh, I mean, you eat this thing straight and it could kill you. And this is the idea of being poisoned. Yes, if you don't have a guide, then you can die from this stuff. But through the ritual, through the group participation, they had experimented for centuries before through all of the vast concourse of time with all of those other mysteries, through that knowledge that was passed down and acquired in the mysteries, they knew exactly how to produce their concoctions in order to give them the maximum vision. I'll put it that way. And they said that this, that's what I wanted to read to you. They said this was a doorway, a doorway. He says here, oh, let's see. After you've said these things, the sun disk will be expanded. And then you have a second prayer and a third prayer. You make a hissing noise and a popping noise. Five star prongs will open up from the disk. And when the disc is open, you will see the fireless circle and the fiery doors shut tight. The, the idea here is they see those doors 
and through more of their initiations through the different grades of the initiation up through the seven grades, they acquire the ability to open those doors and go through them. Well, this is the theme of this flow of energy. The gateway, because what it is, is to another dimension. Now, I've... Uh, well, in the Rig Veda, now in the Vedic tradition, in the Rig Veda, how much time do I have left, Trevor? Am I overdoing it? I think you have about over half an hour. Half an hour? Hot dog. Good. <laughs> I'm going to keep expanding because it gets better. It really does. In the Vedic Rig Veda, now, and this is when the Indo-Europeans came down, they split and they, hey, hold on, Trevor, put that, uh, put that first Mithra, yeah, the second one, number two, put number two up again. No, not that one. The other one. No, not that one. The other one. Okay. Sorry. No, not that one. The other one. Not that one. The other one. <laughs> The second, yeah, that one. There you go. Thank you. See here, now this is a good depiction. You can see Mithras. He, he is usually uh, shown looking backwards. And he's looking backwards onto the sun. Now, these two little dudes over here on either side of him, these are the very famous Dioscuroi, the twins. And they're holding a torch. And the one holds the torch up and the other one holds the torch down. Mithras is looking off into the space. The bull is looking up where this, this little guy is pointing the uh, torch. This is showing you the movement of the energy that is occurring in the cosmological realm. Okay, we've had our meal now there's movement. We are going into the cosmos where there is movement of the rising deities and the setting deities. They are now in that particular arena, right? So this is, this is one of the coolest cotton picking symbolic depictions of something like this. I have ever, whoever thought this up was absolutely inspired. This is fantastic. In the Rig Veda, Soma. Now, this is the Soma drink, the very famous Soma drink. Soma was the uh, drink of the gods in India, right? Well, we found out now our Gordon Wasson. Yeah, I have his book. I was smart enough to bring the book. Hot dog. He wrote an entire subject uh, or a book. On Soma, what is Soma? Soma is the Amanita Muscara mushroom. In the Vedic tradition, it's the drink of the gods. It's the nectar. It is the ambrosia. Very interesting. This is the divine mushroom of immortality. You can see he has the uh, picture of the Amanita Muscara right there. Well, that was the Soma in the Vedic tradition. Well, Soma is described in the Rig Veda as a bellowing red bull. 
there's that color symbolism again always that color symbolism as associated with agni the god of fire and the cognate with english of course is ignite so agni was manifested as fire yeah well the tradition is involving lightning and the sun and this lightning bolt is the pathway which unites the solar and the terrestrial fires <laughs> and it is also seen as the generating source of the mushrooms <laughs> fascinating zeus uh, chuck a chuck a lightning bolt down there on earth and where where the lightning struck boom the mushrooms popped up and that was uh it is so interesting how that is depicted so and the mythic bull is no ordinary bull it was the cosmic bull now it's flesh and blood was not beef i said that earlier but the main item of this mithraic eucharist the equivalent of the christian transubstantiated body and blood of christ is ingesting it made the initiate one with the living deity the sacrificed bull represents the harvested plant god soma heoma the bull is the secret society's encrypted metaphor for their conscious altering eucharist for its practitioners of course mithras was the personification of a cosmic alliance like the biblical covenant and testament the terms of accord between the human and the divine. So Mithras was also symbolic of uh, the agreement, the covenant between man and God. Well, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll become one with you. How do you do that? Well, take, eat, drink, have a banquet. Now these banquets were lively. They were fun. It was a celebration. It was a full-blown meal with all of the sumptuous goodies and drinks available possible because it's a celebration. You're becoming one with your deity. Well, this is winning the sweepstakes for these people, right? That was the principal theme. It is a theme of joy, achievement, uh, heroism, if you'd like. Mithras is the intercessory or the mediator between God and man. He joins opposites is how he is best described. He joins the opposites of the heaven and the earth. And this is this Tarakhtani scene again, because the bull and Mithras there, they represent the mushroom and the mushroom itself, even though it has the round head, the stipe with its upright, it is the axis mundi which represents the deity which is the connecting point from the cosmos down here to us the earth well the way to get in line with that axis mundi the ancient shamans used to climb the trees of your red Marseille iliata shamanism huge study on shamanism their technique was to climb the sacred tree up to the sky the axis mundi or to climb a ladder and then you get into that biblical image of jacob's ladder of course yes and he said whoa this is the 
this is the house of God. Well, of course, because it was the axis that joined the earth with the heaven. Well, when you can get onto that axis, bam, there's your elevator up. The mushroom is your up button to give you that ascension. Isn't that fascinating? Now, I'm going to share one item here just, just briefly. Oh, Carrie, can I break in for a second? No. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you asked. <laughs> well, there have been some requests that we leave some time for questions. Oh, so oh. do you think you could wrap up in like nine minutes to leave about half an hour? Because you said nobody's so many interesting gonna have, things. Nobody's going to have any questions. I put you all to sleep, didn't I? They, they all say they have questions. Okay. Okay. Well, essentially, yeah, let me wrap up. Thank you. Uh, in the ascension, this is the last key I wanted to get across anyway, actually, because I've, I've got it. I've got it for you. The, the idea of the ascension is very, very profound. Leonor Leet, in her book on the Kabbalah, The Secret Doctrine of the Kabbalah, one of the most profound books I have ever read on the Kabbalah, she is describing the Enoch literature. Uh, it, it is specifically Third Enoch, the Hebrew book of Enoch. This, this basically is about Rabbi Ishmael's uh, ascension to heaven. Well, in the ascension, see, this is the idea of the Kabbalah tree of life, where they have the 10 sephirot, and all of those paths connect. The idea is, as you acquire each of those attributes, there's three columns, the one column of severity, the one column of mercy, the middle column of balance, right? This is the yin and the yang from the Jewish perspective in the form of a tree which you climb, right? You start at the bottom of this Kabbalistic tree and you zigzag your way up through the lightning. Same imagery, right? You zigzag all the way up into the cosmos. It is the same thing. However, here is the most remarkable thing about the book of Enoch. And Leonor Lee shows this with the Kabbalah in both of her books, The Secret Doctrine of the Kabbalah and The Universal Kabbalah. When Enoch ascends to heaven, and the description is remarkable. I mean, it talks about his very flesh melting and and him being reconstituted into an entirely new being and he is so bright he is so hot that the angels have to stick him in a bathtub of ice <laughs> what an image to cool him off right enoch when he sees the man on the throne now he he has this vision of the deity but it's himself it's not a separate deity he is seeing his higher self and his higher self says hi kiddo guess who what the Mithraic materials 
are showing. What the Vedantic Buddha materials are showing and what the early pseudepigraphic, well, and actually th that's not true. This is the later book of Enoch, I'm sorry. The first and second Enoch are the earlier ones, the BC. These, uh, the third Enoch, and they're various fragments of books. These were written after Christ. What they are showing is there's only one deity and you are it. We just don't know it. But the purpose of the ascension is to learn who you really are. And you're that man on the throne. Now that that's, I mean, that's the sweepstakes, you know? And it's not a basis of building up your ego either. It's not ego, I can become God so that I am better than you. No, throw all that noise away. That's not the, that's not the point. The point is we are all through the ingestion of the deity of the sacred meal, we learn that we are all in this cosmos as part of, not apart from. Okay, I'll quit there. I hope I didn't go too long. You guys have questions, so let's yeah, let's go ahead and field one question. <laughs> okay, talk to me. You got it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I want I wanted to talk about you know Mirthra to the Zoroastrians meant oath or covenant, which I thought was really interesting. The what? But, the oath or the covenant, uh -huh. the, what Mirthra is. Yeah, That's yeah, he's he's the, he's basically the treaty, the uh, the go between, the joining, and the basis. Uh, and I didn't get to the cap. This little Phrygian cap, it's usually red. That signifies the power of the connection between the earth and the heaven and it means friendship it means a uh, uh, a connection with a real good friend isn't that fascinating that was their covenant it was their covenant of hey you're not separate from the heavens you are one with the heavens because you're it well that's the indian view taught to bomb aussie isn't that fascinating? So we do That's have this in the West. What makes that interesting is, that, are you familiar with the ceremony of the invocation of the holy guardian angel, the bornless one? It's a Greek ritual called the headless one. Someone asked me that a couple of weeks ago. No, I'm not, but I will become so. <laughs> it's really similar to what you're talking about where it has um, the barbarous names that you talked about the very first of the thing. So some of these barbarous names would be like Iauper, Iauper, Ifaf, Iau, Iau, Abrasax. And they and chant the ritual, them kind of like the Aum. Yeah. yeah well, and the, purpose of the, the purpose of the ritual is to contact your holy guardian angel or your higher self. So it goes all along what you've been talking about. Very, says, I am no, what, what tradition is this in, Gazellum? It's Greek. Greek. Okay, uh, interesting. Translated from the Greek. It says, I am he, the bornless spirit, having sight in the feet, strong in the immortal fire. 
and it's just a yeah. really oh the immortal fire is a big subject <laughs> in Mithraism. Yeah, um, the purpose of intoning the vows, Leonor Leak talks about this in her secret doctrine of the Kabbalah. Jehovah, of course, is the mispronunciation, but when you intone the vowels of the Hebrew, you get the correct pronunciation. And Leonor Leak talks about that. And there are seven Hebrew vowels which coincide with the seven planetary spheres of, guess what? The cosmos. Each vowel represents a sphere. As you sing that vowel, you move into the deeper part of the cosmos until you have transcended all seven spheres. And then you go through the doorway of the solstice into the great deity. Fabulous. Well, and it's interesting how in the Kabbalic, um, the actual Hebrew letters, that there are no vowels. And so that's Correct. really interesting, too. The vowels are put onto it. But the reason I brought it up is because the Abraham the mage, the secret teachings of Abraham, well, Abraham the, the mage. Oh, that's Mathers. You know what? Yeah, Mathers. I had well, that translated in it. my hands and didn't buy it. I can't remember why I didn't. Years ago, that's dang it. So that brings it full circle to the Mormon thing because a lot of a lot of that, like the magical squares, were found in the Jupiter talisman and the parchment. Ah, interesting. Magical things with Mormonism. So, and the Smith family was definitely involved with that. Yeah, yeah, they were. Well, thank you. That's an interesting point. I, I will look that up. I will the hornless one. Any other questions? Gary. Okay, good. Okay, oh. hey, Tim. Tim, hey. how you doing, my friend? Good, good. How how does what does this have to do with vibrations and cardinal points of the compass? Like, are the Mithraic temples north, south, or east, west, or how are they placed? Yeah, they they put them. Well, I, you mean the Mithrae themselves? Yes. That's a good question. I'm not, yes. you know what? I, I haven't paid attention to that, to be honest with you. So at this point, I don't know. Um, I will look into that and see. My suspicion, though, is that there does have something to do with the, well, I mean, they, they invoke the four elements. So each one of the elements is a various, uh, is a uh, connection to the various directions so i suspect yes they would be i'm just not sure oh i'll bet you i'll bet yes i do too no they always put the sculpture the mithraic sculpture to the east the sunrise <laughs> okay that makes sense yeah. yeah yeah because it's the sun god yeah right and this ties beautifully in with the egyptian Osiris in the underworld and his counterpart, Amun Ray. That is why the Egyptians early in the morning first stood and faced the sun, welcoming him back from his underworld journey in the Duat. Right. Yeah, it, yeah they did. They faced east. Okay. <laughs> okay. Any other questions? 
Terry, I suppose I should thank you for your attention to my work. This is Dennis. And um, absolutely, you're obviously Dennis. on top of so much of this literature that I don't know. Uh -oh. um, and the, I'm a little um, surprised that you use the Dionysian gospel um, the way you do. Am and, I doing it wrong? I'm sorry. No, 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 oh, not, oh. not that it's wrong, but I don't think it's characteristic of early Christian literature. That is, I think this community is more prone to esotericism and to the mysteries of Dionysus than, um, and you, you brought up appropriately um, Justin Martyr, and you could do other apologists who talk about sure. Mithras and so on. But I'm more interested in the major developments in Christianity and Greco-Roman religion, uh, as opposed to esotericism. Oh, and um, I think you've got really quite an imaginative grasp on ancient esotericism, and I admire it. Oh, um, but as you know, our sources for Mithraism are really quite thin uh, compared to the study of other religion. Yeah. And um, you, you're having to make connections among data that um, aren't obvious to everyone. And so the question sure. then becomes, how does a critical methodology inform the kinds of uh, connections you're making? Now, I'm not, I, this is not a challenge to any of the connections you're making. Oh, what I'm missing, <laughs> no, no, uh, what I'm missing is the, um, I would say the historical rigor that's required in seeing that this thing is related to that thing and the, the chronologies and if there's any literary relationship between one thing or another. One thing that bothers me about Mithraism, I just have to say, is Say that it, it is um, so restricted to um, men and that it's so restricted to the military, even though the iconography has nothing to do with the military. These people are not carrying Excellent. weapons. Yeah, um, they're, they're, they're not in armor. Um, yeah. They're actually in some garments that art historians would say are transvestists. So, yeah. um, uh, so I think part of you're your getting traction on what you're trying to get to, which I think is okay. Um, is to um, delineate for yourself what are the criteria that allow one to say that this is that. So, um, for example, ascensions or solar imagery or the, 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 um, the mythology about the bull is huge. It's not just a solar image. I mean, the Taurus and so on. Um, it's, it also has to do with virility. What about the dog that's licking the wounds and the serpent that is licking the wounds? One of those in mythology is identified with death, namely the dog. And the, the other serpent. is eternal yes. life is the serpent. And then you yes. have the, um, the scorpions 
that are identified with uh, the various kinds of mythology. You have That's... the garments that are driven by the wind. And you talked about this uh, wind as another uh, physical element in addition to the solar and the lunar, which are, are definitely there. There's no doubt about it. Um, the idea of having stars in the cave is very similar to having stars in cathedrals, in you know medieval um, ca cathedrals and so on. Mm -hmm. So I think the next stage is for you to be self-conscious about what, and this is not a criticism, it's just an oh. encouragement to, to move forward. Sure. How does one, I guess I have two questions. One, okay. how does one establish reasonably the um, connections between one mytheme and another? You know, are these genetically or mimetically connected or are they random? Another is, what is the relationship of, of uh, esotericism to the dominant religion strains of the Greco-Roman society? So let's say um, Greek religion is typified um, um, superficially by the Homeric epics, or right. Roman religion is typified superficially by Virgil's Aeneid or the Ovid or, or Ovid's Metamorphoses. So, um, I th what I'm missing, I think, in some cases, Carrie, is the glue that holds these imaginative and informed observations that you make, and you do so with such enthusiasm. An enthusiasm that I must say I don't share as an atheist. So, um, right. I'll, I'll, I'll let you respond to that. Well, because you're really getting into theosophy almost at this point when you're blending everything together like that, making connections it, with. It, I, I am. And the mushroom. And, you know. Yeah, well, and, and this is the thing um, in a presentation such as this, I can't possibly show. I mean, it, I understand that. No, I yeah, appreciate that, yeah. actually. So, so yes, this, the, and thank you for those comments. That is precisely why I want to write the book <laughs> on this subject, because the, the syncretistic nature of the Mithraists' uh, views, the, the defect, the downside, I should say for us, as well as all scholars, which everyone I've read on the Mithraic stuff has all acknowledged is there's very precious literary. That's exactly we right. We are interpreting art and that can get sticky, yeah, right? right? I, I yep. mean, you, you, you gotta, there, you, we can't become dogmatic. And, and I, I hear that as a substrate, that's what you're driving at very properly. So I'm just basically sharing the enthusiasm that there has been. David Ulancey has given us the astronomical interpretation, which fits all the symbolism of the Tarochtonies, more or less. And then someone else comes along and gives us a different interpretation not by way of refuting the astronomy, but then Karl Ruck's new interpretation is to bring in the entheogenic 
sacred meal and tie it in with the other sacred meals of the other mysteries. So, yeah, they are generic connections. Let, let, no. let me let me what add one more thing. Sure. I thought okay. I thought your description in the art of the Dioscuri Castor and Polydeuces being on either side of a relatively seated um, Mithras is very interesting because um, the Dioscuri represent alternatives between life and death. That one of the, one is a son of Zeus and the other is the son of uh, um, uh, Tyndareus, I believe, and so they have an agreement that one of them will uh, live on a day, and on the alternate day, his brother oh, yes. will live, so that the tw the twins are alternating immortality. Immortality, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I can imagine that that's going to be important for soldiers. <laughs> I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the idea that the Dioscuri on either side of the Mithras and uh, this solar stuff is not by accident because they have already with Pindar a very uh, and actually actually already with the Odyssey. Um, they have this alternating death and life stuff and that's why in one case the torch is li is lifted and the other is that it's down because one means it's going up into the heavens, namely, usually, uh, Polydeuces. And, yeah. and the other is Castor, who's going down to the netherworld. He's going down to the netherworld. Yeah, yeah, they're alternating back and forth. About, That's right. Kind of like uh, Persephone does, back and forth, two thirds up above Earth. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's the same. It's the same myth, uh, myth theme. Yeah. Thank you for those comments. I, I, I am going to look into those. I have uh, lots and lots of books with lots of lots of tabs that I've been trying to find ideas. What is this connection? How come that? Now, my parallels, I will say, and, and your comment helps me correct this too. Uh, it does appear an assumption on mine because I didn't have time to express it or explain it. But my parallels are not uh, causative. They're, they're, I'm not intending to show because there's a parallel, say, between this aspect of the Tarochtony and that aspect in Eleusius or the Kabiroi or the Attic mythology, that that means this is where they got it from. I'm just not sure how I'm going to put all that together yet. Yeah, the genetics kind of is very difficult. End. No, the genetics yeah, yeah. is very difficult. It may not be possible to do. <laughs> we'll see, right? So, yeah, fun stuff. Okay. So, uh, Mike Weiss is his hand. Hey, Weiss. Mike, how are you, my friend? Good to see you. Do you have your mic on, Mike? <laughs> I don't hear him. It says I can't unmute himself, he says. Well, good. That's one way for you to shut up. But we don't want you to shut up. We want you to talk. 
Can't you hit that mic button, Mike? Just click on it once and it should. You may have to just type it in. Yes, you can get a copy of this lecture. I will. Uh, I'm actually going to put it out on YouTube. Although it, it's, you know, Dr. McDonald has a point. I, I am. Th this is uh, a much more uh, imaginative sort of a quick conglomeration for the sake of the presentation, just to let you kind of get a feel for some of the potential new directions that Mithraism could be taking and some of the new information that has not been analyzed. And this new view has been coming in, basically, Dr. McDonald, about as long as you have been doing your uh, mimesis studies. I think your earliest book is, uh, oh, what, 20 years ago? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, so for the last 20 years, I think Carl Ruck has been kind of pulling, and he has been accused of seeing mushrooms in everything. And yeah, that can be a problem. So that's a matter of me sorting through this and that and thus and so, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it all works. Huh, um, so. Of course, another issue, if I might, another sure. issue is how important hallucinogens are in the religious experience, because it seems to me that it shortchanges philosophical commitments. And um, the religions are both left brain and right brain. So that um, on the, at the same time that you would have meals that mean something in the mythological realm, you also have, for example, Plato's Phaedo, where Socrates is sharing his last day with his friends and says, have a, a nice chicken dinner on me after I'm dead. Because, um, uh, you know, give a, give a cock to Asclepius. That is, I don't know to what extent, how does, this is actually just a, a question to you, Carrie. How okay. does one measure the esotericism in the mythologies with the philosophy and general cultural impulses that you have in ancient society? And I'm developing a methodology called uh, social identity theory or social identity criticism. Uh -huh. So if I were to examine the information that you gave us about uh -huh. Mithraism, I would ask the following questions. Okay. How is the prototypical leader identified? The second is who are the stereotyped in-group members. So who are the initiates in this case? And um, I would wanna know who they are by gender. I'd like to know who they are by status. I'd like to know who they are by geography. I'd like to know, I'd like to unpack everything I can about them. Then wow. I'd like to know who does a text identify as the stereotyped outgroup? Where do I find name calling? Where do I find um, opposition? How does the in-group identify itself over against the out-group? And it seems to me that um, it's unfortunate that our sources are too thin to be able to say 
too much about that. Yeah. On the other hand, those are huge Durkheimian questions to ask about religion. And, Good point. Um, and, and Good they're point. the ones that would, one would ask about religion of any kind, including Mormonism, and I'm an outsider to that. But I know sure. that people, intellectuals, have asked those very questions. Who are mm. the prototypical leaders? Who are the in-group members? And how does the group identify itself against outsiders in various ways? Yeah. So um, th these are simply agendas that need to be used going forward. Right. Um, in order right. To, to, to get a little more social scientific traction on what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think uh, the other interesting thing, uh, so far as I can tell, it's good <laughs> at this point. They are uh, continuing to discover other Mithrae, but when, when Christianity became the official religion, I mean, we know that St. Peter's itself is perfectly built over one of those old Mithrae. <laughs> And it has stars in the copula. Yeah, they just built right over them. So a lot of it was destroyed. But the continual uh, archaeological discovery is happening, probably not at a real fast rate. But um, yeah, I, I may not figure out any of that in my lifetime. But those are excellent points. I'm very glad you brought those up because all of this has to be sorted through all of it has to be approached and analyzed catalog cataloged and the methodologies have to be explicit and transferable it, it does and I, and I confess here and now for for this presentation my methodology was a data dump <laughs> well just just all of ours are we we struggle time. along we're all mortal yeah 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 Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. Thank you. Great suggestions. I'm going to take them up. But first, so, I'm going to uh, I'm going to look I'm into. I'm to break in. Uh, Mike Weiss brought in a comment here. It's pretty interesting. The reason Mithraism was popular among the soldiers was that it was related to both PTSD and healing the trauma of war, as well as immortality. Um, and he says that this point was made by a scholar out of Yale a few years back, and I'm not I'm not aware of that, but that's a great insight. I think I'll it goes along with what uh, Professor McDonald was saying at one point. It's a great insight. It is a great insight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the and they never really did make huge groups either. They're they're saying anywhere from. 20 to 30 it's not like uh the mega churches today or whatever but but the the mithrae have been found all the way up into scotland i mean they were spread they found several hundred mithrae i i don't even know if i'm pronouncing that right it's m-i-t-h-r-a-e-a -A. um but but they found hundreds of them scattered all the way east way to the other end of the black sea all the way south into egypt so it really was widespread but it was a secret society too. And unfortunately they kept the secret kind of like Eleusis did, darn it. There was very little written. Uh, all we can do is translate the art. And of course, 
there's going to be disagreements, there's going to be contradictions. So this social dimension you're bringing up, Dr. McDonald, is it would appear to me to be very important. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep that in mind while I'm, I'm still looking. I'm still in the process of researching. Um, I, was, I was pretty excited to so find. Let, let, me, let me just add to that other comment that I thought was so important. Yeah. yeah. In the uh, iconography, you have a weapon. And the weapon is used against probably the most important male virile imagery that you have in Greek mythology, namely the bull. The bull. Now, yeah. of course, you have the bull is related to astrology and so on. But the fact that you have an unarmed man with a single um, knife uh, trying to kill the bull and holding his nose up, usually a bull was killed with an axe and was done in a sacrifice and so on. And this, um, this person who's doing it is really unarmed. And by the way, we didn't talk about the, in some of the imagery, this is not a Roman headdress. It actually is a uh, Eastern headdress. Um, that is, yes. it's the, the Persian headdress. And then in Rome, in Rome, it becomes more of a Roman um, uh, kind of a headscarf Press. or something. Um, but uh, the, the, the idea of these, this Persian headdress indicates that this is, at least for this art, it has an, uh, an Eastern provenance instead of a Western one. It's not Greek, it's Middle Eastern. Um, yes. And so the, the, all kinds of this stuff has to be sorted through, I think, Gary. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, excellent point. Yep. Well, I mean, that's, that's the, there's a lot of study, man. Holy shish kebab. It'll take me a, a I mean, while. I wish we, I wish our sources were clearer about it because so I much of it is intentionally esoteric. At this point, it appears to be, that's, that's yeah. true. Good point. But I mean, honestly, um, my, and I could be misreading you here too. So this would be great to have you correct me, but my interpretation of your fantastic Euripidean gospel in connection with John, the, the esoteric sense of John attempting to make Jesus uh, a more merciful, beneficial deity than Dionysus, less harsh, perhaps, uh, and also a greater worker of miracles. Now, I, I understand he's doing it mimetically, not historically, but it still puts the point across that John is attempting, in the process of uh, trying to persuade, not necessarily overthrow Dionysus, but persuade those, his audience, that, hey, my deity really is more useful to you, more uh, larger, more powerful, more loving, more merciful. You really need to come over here instead of continue with yours. And his miracles are always greater. Well, that, there, there's that something, can be seen so, esoterically. No, no, there's something to that. I actually think that the author is more interested in correcting the Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels 
who's a martyr and expects people to suffer and to have eternal uh, treasures in heaven. Dionysus is one who offers wine and a good time in this life. So that I think you have two things going on in the Dionysian gospel. On the one hand, he's, the author is trying to say to his audience, um, Jesus is not just there to piss on your life. And <laughs> yeah. if I could put it that way. Um, no, that, no, that's, that's about right. <laughs> but, uh, but on the other hand, he's um, more compassionate than Dionysus insofar as Dionysus punishes with dismemberment uh, Pentheus who opposes him. Now, Jesus can play hard nose with his opponents too. Sure. But um, the issue, I think that you have this, um, what I would call a beautiful literary hermeneutical dance in mythology in the fourth gospel. And the mythology has to do with the received tradition about Jesus as the hard-nosed martyr expecting sacrifice of his people. And in a context where Dionysus is show people a good time, good time, but with not a, a lot of moral restraint, and um, the, the Dionysian gospel is trying to um, uh, carve out a Jesus that addresses both. Very that's forget. my reading of it. Yeah. Jesus yeah. comes by the sword and he's not here to bring peace to the world. Well, that's in Luke. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. Carrie, if I could ask you a question. Um, sure. Sure. I was a little bit surprised and not in a negative way because, of course, I'm fascinated by all these things, but um, you, you actually focused a lot on Mithraism writ large and the Mithra. And I, I, I noticed this as you, you know, sent me your images that you were headed more in this direction, perhaps. But um, you also talked about the Mithraist liturgy. And I was, it was an interesting choice, I think, to kind of move away from that in your discussion because. Uh, particularly as it concerns uh, the use of hallucinogenic substances, there's a lot better argument to be made, a clearer argument to be made uh, with reference to the liturgy itself, which uh, in, our, in our conversations outside of this context, you had done a pretty fantastic job, I thought, of yeah. uh, explaining the recipes that are given in a way yeah. that really you want me to bring that up? Uh, strongly suggests that there was the use of a hallucinogenic mushroom in the Mithras liturgy. Absolutely. Now, of course, the connection between the Mithras liturgy and uh, the Mithraism as a whole—that's uh, a contentious point. You know, some it people is. don't know whether Mithraism and the Mithras liturgy are necessarily attached to each other. And of course, another problem is that we don't really know about the consistency of Mithraism across 
the Roman Empire. It may have been different in different places, but oh, it was. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Karl Ruck says that too. Good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, this uh, the the liturgy. Let let me just uh, briefly. Uh, it after the liturgy is finished, it gives instruction for the rite, and it specifically says after a certain amount of fasting and bathing and purifying yourself and all that jazz, it actually does come up and it says, if you want to show this to someone else, take the, now, if you want to show this to someone else, he's talking about the ascension vision here. That's the it that yeah. he's talking about. He says, take the juice of the herb called Cantritis and smear it along with rose oil over the eyes of the one you wish, and he will see so clearly that he will amaze you. Now, one of the themes of the mythological depiction of the mushroom is the eye, because mm. it does allow you to see more clearly. I mean, that, that's the, the mythological theory behind this. But this Cantritis plant, I just happened to have it marked, Carl Ruck says, with regard to the entheogenic nature of the Mithraic Eucharist, it's significant midway. Oh, well, no, that's talking about the, uh... okay, here we go. Among other symbolic associations, both the serpent and the scorpion have poisonous stings, toxins that they derive or inject in the entho-botanical traditions from the plants they feed upon. The Greek magical papyrus that contains the so-called Mithras liturgy specifically names the plant itself as the stinger, the cantritis. Such was also the source of the bee's sting, and they use the honey and the milk uh, and I noticed Gazellum said that the mushrooms were preserved in honey. That is true, too. And these could be transmuted into honey or the entheogenic honey drink, because they did make the honey drink also. The association of the serpent with the bull entheogen is made explicit in, in a particular fragment, and so on and so forth. But he says back here in the footnote, uh, this part of the text contains the directions for obtaining the cosmic vision. There cannot be the slightest doubt that the plant is psychoactive. This is the only place in the text where the Cantritis plant occurs. And in one of the, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to find it real quick. In one of the explanations of the Romans, I believe, they were describing a plant that was named after Osiris, who that gives them their vision. Yeah, that's uh, that's plenty of the elder talking about Appian. He used Osiris oh, to yes, 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 perform necromancy. Yes, sure. Yeah, right. So, but yes. one thing I would like to point out, um, and and here I think you know. Professor McDonald, I think, had to leave, but oh, one of the no. points that he's making so well is that um, here you're taking this big collection of phenomenon and you're relating them to each other. One point where I think you're going to have to 
be careful. And I don't know how Ruck deals with it. Ruck may deal with it. But, you know, when I read the Mithras liturgy, particularly at that point where it's talking about um, the, um, this recipe uh -huh. uh, for anointing the eyes, it right. doesn't really sound like a regular initiatic ritual is being described because it says, if you want someone else to see this, uh -huh. uh, and then it gives you instructions, whereas ordinarily with an initiatic ritual, well, there's no question that the initiate <laughs> is going to want to... point. You know, yeah. so so I'm I'm kind of wondering whether um, that may be that that may be that person's personal uh, use of that plant instead of a ritual use. That's a is that what you're trying to get at? Well, because or or it could be that the elements of Mithraic ritual have been adapted to uh, magical practice of a more personal yeah. nature and that well, they say later that... on that you're supposed to put a concoction together and uh you're supposed to write the i e u e a it almost sounds like the vowel pronunciation of jehovah no joke man at the end of the yeah. liturgy and he says put this on mixing with honey and myrrh and with the kentritis purify it in face the sunrise and lick off the leaf while you show it to the sun so you're 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 letting it mature for several days in the sun and once it gets coagulated or whatever it is because you wrote it in the sacred vows with this concoction and mix with this plant then you lick it off so so there's also an ingestion as well as an anointing a smearing of this oil but yeah. they know that some of the uh ancient concoctions uh mixtures if you will of various different herbs and drugs you also smeared on your body and it was absorbed through the skin and then you right. that, that was one of the shamanic techniques that uh, i believe Eliada showed i'll have to double check that but anyway uh -huh. that, that's another technique that they were using yeah no yeah it's all, so I, it's all I think, yeah i'm on the forefront of all of this that this is yeah this, no, it's great. Getting, it's really exciting. Getting your guys' just, feedback on this. This is superb. Yeah, it, it's You know, of course, Roger Beck wanted to uh, place the foundations of Mithraism at Nero's meeting with Tiridates. Uh, but yes, that would be earlier, earlier than, you know, most scholars believe that... It, are comfortable with because our archaeological evidence, of course, post states it. And I, so I think right. that, um, well, archaeology, I think you're on very solid ground with the hallucinogens in the Mithraic liturgy. Uh, but the question is one of context and uh, also one of, you know, the continuity between. Uh, the Mithraea and the cult that's taking place there and that liturgy. So um, this is that's not just say that's that. a good point, Trevor, because we honestly don't know 
the the original context of this liturgy. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, just one of the it's just one of the loose fragments of Greek papyri. Uh, so so that is an excellent point. Um, now here's the dumb thing: I could have swore for my Christmas present. Uh, I got five or six different books of various people, Peter Kingsley and Lamberton and Ruck. And I could have swore I bought more books and commentaries on the liturgy itself, but I don't have them. I, huh, I must, okay. They must have canceled them or something. So I'm getting to the point to where I'm going to have to spend some more money to get some more books, which is a complete blessed disaster because I love books, right? You can't <laughs> tell by my background. So, so I, well, I one will of the ex- things that you may want to look at, and I'm sorry to break in again, is, sure. uh, in, uh, but the whole phenomenon, uh, which was a, a very you know, widespread, at least in, in the Greek world, um, I also think in the Roman, and uh, common, phenomenon here it's it's they're called dealers in mysteries and and this this idea could be helpful for you this uh you know this phenomenon of people who went around selling initiations so what we're not talking about here of course is a a site like elusis where you have a a fixed location and a well-known ritual that thousands uh, if not hundreds of thousands of people have participated in, uh, but rather you have people who are itinerant going from city to city, and just as some would sell their magical knowledge and perform spells, incantations, well, you had people who were selling initiations yeah. into mystery cults. Yeah. Um, is it possible that along with, you know, because if, if you think about it, this is, this is actually a kind of uh, a social and economic, economic phenomenon where you have similar kinds of services that are being offered, the sale of magic, the sale of mysteries. Oh, and lo and behold, we may here have a cross-pollination between the selling of magic and the selling of mysteries. Well, that ties um, in with Mike Weiss's idea that the uh, Roman rituals helped them through their PSD and, and yeah, all that. PSTD. Yeah, yeah, no, it's. I mean, that's certainly giving yeah. us an, some kind of understanding of the context in which. Yeah, that it, was fun to see how that, that would have been attractive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the final really, point, because I kind of wanted to draw this all back around to Mormonism, <laughs> if I can. The idea okay. is the dealer, the dealer in mysteries and uh, the, the, the fact that a, an initiation ritual could be used in a magical context. And that really, you know, we don't have to think in terms of either or. In other no, words, it, it isn't just elusis or just it dealers can be and mysteries, yep. but it you know you can kind of swing between the poles here, and sometimes a, a, a mystery religion will be in a fixed location for a long time, 
And then it may get ported into another environment entirely. Uh, I bet you Cheryl's book talks that way. Well, this is my question. <laughs> There's combinations. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. you know, Joseph Smith encounters what's really kind of an itinerant phenomenon uh, in the folk magical practice, but also the, the more uh, institutionalized uh, Freemasonry. And, you know, yeah, she's going to have a lot more to say. And, and, and by the way, Cheryl, Rock in this book, Mushrooms, Myth, and Mithras, his last chapter is all on Freemasonry. Huh. Truly. Okay. Is that right? Yeah, you might want to check that out if, if you haven't seen it. Of course, and your yeah. book's already finished, more or less, but, but it's a fun you know, I actually thought of you when I read that. I thought, oh, hey, Freemasonry. Too. He's just simply showing that some aspects of the ancient mysteries continued forward through time. And uh, some things are also reflected. It appears to be in Freemasonry as well wow. as in ancient Interesting. Time. But, so, you know, Joseph Smith probably didn't encounter a lot of Freemasonry from personal experience in a lodge. It had to come well, from other sources. One of the interesting things that um, kind of, I don't know if it connects at all, but it came to my mind as you were talking was um, that there were itinerant people that used to go around and give, um, you know, Masonic um, degrees. Sure. Was, oh, yeah. perfect. And so we have one, person whose name was Edwin Krubin. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, that yeah. went around giving um, sort of Royal Arch type-ish degrees. And he was actually censured, though, by um, many of the Grand Lodges for doing this. But we have in the um, Mormon, in the Nauvoo Lodge minutes, that Edwin Krubin came to their lodge and they um, thanked him for um, you know, showing them some interesting things. Oh, how cool. So, no, that's yeah, fantastic. Was... That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, here, that's exactly the kind of thing my, I'm talking about. Here would be, and this is honestly, it's just based on the very beginning start of all of this because Trevor, you're the one that kind of got the fire lit under my derriere about this <laughs> liturgy a couple of months ago. So I've been hard at it for maybe 90 days. And I mean, I've been pretty hard at it. I've been doing almost a book a day for 90 days on this, and I'm nowhere near done. But if I can sum it up, and it's going to be a negative, I don't mean it to be, but it's going to be based on, and I, I agree entirely, this is just one approach, okay? But the mushrooms, the chemical interaction of the entheogens because of the mixture of other materials in with it it really does affect how the synapses in the brain fire or don't now we know the brain is not a sponge it is more like a filter we stop much more that's coming in than we absorb our brain is our 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 visual is very narrow 
we don't see x-rays normally we don't see infrared you know we don't see gamma rays and all that and the spectrum goes out in infinitely our version of the spectrum for our vision is just narrow razor thin compared to what is there well we also know we only use 10 11 percent of our brain what would it be like if our brain could open up to say 30 percent total use or a hundred man i'm telling you that's a whole new reality we don't see that because of the foods we ingest we see the 3d world that we're in right now and we say well this is reality yeah based on what we're eating but we're so terrified of a bigger larger reality outside the box that we've outlawed the means to potentially understand that larger reality isn't that weird well it's weird but it's also joseph smith missed the entheogen aspect of the eucharist i don't know that he did i don't know that he did sure he did it's all a placebo it's just bread and water the banquet yeah it is yeah i mean you have have you read that have you read the information that they're talking about now with joseph smith and entheogens and um just going into that no, but I'd love yeah. to send me a link. Yeah, no, this is, I, I would say that. Oh, yeah, it, you need to. Oh, yeah, you need really to good. get into that. I will. I did not know that was going on. Oh, no, you need to. Yeah. Well, is it, it Bryce the... Blankenagle, right? Is that the guy that does? Well, maybe yeah, I should have said one. Russell M. Nelson instead of Joseph Smith. <laughs> then uh, Don Bradley's done some work on that. Bryce Blankenagle. There are a few other people who've who uh, talks about it, I would say chances are pretty good, especially up to the Kirtland period. I'll be darned. Well, yeah, see? You, really, oh, yeah. you really should read it and let us know what you think about that. Um, because, yeah. I will. I have, I, <laughs> I this is the fun thing of these out. meetings, man. This is great. I know yeah. a lot of LDS apologists that are into the LSD. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you yeah, mean yeah. the LDS? <laughs> LDS Too much a LDS. Of, a lot of microdosing going on. Not to mention all the yuppies going down to take ayahuasca. Yeah, that's Mike, true. Mike Weiss asked an excellent question. Isn't El Elyon represented by a bull? Indeed, he is. So is Osiris. And El Elyon was the earliest canaanite deity in the pantheon that's a very good point mike he asked that about a half hour ago is he still here uh yes he is yeah, yeah he is he is excellent i'm just now getting to the chat i'm not trying to yeah he it. just said something about entheogens too in the chat boy i'm mike. way behind on the chat holy shish kebab Mike's yeah, the entheogenic effects of the mushroom up to Kirtland is very interesting, he says. Yeah, I agree. That. I had no idea there were studies on that stuff. You guys rock. Oh, man. yeah. <laughs> and I mean, they're interesting studies. They're not just, you know, I mean, he's gone deeply into it. So, right, um, right. I yeah. know that well, I agree Bryce with everything, but. Expanded on, on, Bryce has just expanded on a lot of earlier stuff that in the 90s that was about that 
when there was that book hearts up. made glad yeah hearts made glad wasn't that more That's about a... alcohol though well no? yeah but <laughs> but still <laughs> as well, you know yeah yeah right alcohol is yeah, the vehicle be. it's what you put in the alcohol that matters that's a good argument. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, uh, I think, uh, are there any final parting questions? Hey, whoever is, whoever is on iPhone makes another good point, too. I'm going to acknowledge this real quick. Uh, he also says ball was represented by a bull, too. Now, see, all I can do is touch on each one. There are at least, I touched on, what, two, three, maybe four categories tonight, simply because yeah. I knew we only had an hour and a half. There are over 25 categories out of this Mithras liturgy, Mithraism, that I'm going to be putting into this book. Wow. And this is one of them, is the other culture's use of these symbols that Mithraism talks about. So, yeah, Baal was also, see, that bull symbolism, that goes back to the, the constellations in the Mithraic paroctomy scene are those along the ecliptic dating yeah. from 4000 to 2000 bc the age wow. of taurus that's yeah. why taurus is so prominent right okay. so yeah excellent point though that's a good point ball was also yeah all of back that's no bull either oh i think <laughs> iphone is rfm by the way who rfm Radio Free Mormon. Is the iPhone. Okay. Well, if it is your <laughs> FM hot dang, I'm glad you got to show up. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah, Mike, I am going to look into Bryce. Uh, who is this Bryce? What's his last name? Blankernagle. 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 Blankenagle. Sorry, I added an R in there. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> I don't have access to writing right now, but um, Trevor, I'm going to get with you, and you can you can give it to me by email. Sure, I'm sure. Gonna, I'm going to look I'd into that. Happy I did to. not know that. That is really pleasantly surprising. That's good because that was one of my concerns. Well, I say concern, but one of my issues is how, how could uh, Joseph Smith have missed that? There. I mean, wow. No, this, no, it was this, all around. This banquet, this entheogenic banquet, I'm not kidding. It goes across the board everywhere in the ancient world. That Carl Ruck is not just spinning yarn. He's got excellent documentation in yeah. about five different books I have. And there are others working on that. So this is not just trying to say, oh, hey, let me come up with something novel. huh? There, This is yeah. an area that the classicists have just not explored yet, and now it's starting to come Carrie, I, I'm recalling yes. from an anthropology class I took a, a, a while back, but uh -huh. they made the point that in all cultures, they either used ethnogens if they were available in their geographic location. If they were not available, then they would use music to get themselves into a, a transitive state, kind of a trance oh. music. And so, but but ethnogens were Trump, right? Well, I shouldn't say Trump. We're we're premier. <laughs> yeah, well, if not, then, then this and it was a certain beat that would help them get into this trance. Yeah, this was the theme of chanting as well. Thank you. That's excellent. So I point that out. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very important point. Yeah, you don't even have to use entheogens at all to have an ascension. I mean, if you will, look in the Eleusinian mysteries, it describes these guys fasting for nine 
days and then making that hike up to the uh, Oracle 13 miles. I mean, they were ready, man. When they got there, that was a serious preparation. You know, this wasn't just two meals on Sunday morning and then pig out. They really <laughs> put themselves into it. But they have demonstrated uh, fasting does change your brain, how the, how it fires and the chemistry uh, mm-hmm. after a couple yeah. of days. And, and the fasting doesn't mean no sure. liquid. It does not mean no liquid. You must have the liquid, of course. But the fasting does involve... There are certain foods you can consume. I don't know the whole details of all of it, but what a great topic, you guys. I'm I'm glad you showed up. Thank you. I I didn't think anybody would show up except Trevor and me and Dr. McDonald. So all the rest of you guys are just fabulous. Yeah, this is well, great. thank you. I enjoy associating. Thanks so much, Gary. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Gary. Yeah, we, we've got to let absolutely thank you, Gazellum. I appreciate everybody showing up. You too, Mike Weiss. I know I specially invited you a little late. I didn't mean to, but uh, Mike has been watching some of my videos and I mentioned on my videos that I was doing this. So he contacted me. So anyway, you're apologetic. Now, now I can, <laughs> if it's interesting, if you're interested, perhaps later on this year, sometime in the fall or whatever, we can follow up with a new look at this yeah no that'd be cool we can let trevor know and see what happens but yeah no i'm i'm enjoying this whole series and i'm looking forward to hearing trevor trevor you've done such a great job pulling these things together um yes this has been a really valuable um project well i hope it it i hope it continues and you guys are what makes it great and then i'm humbled that you know we come together and we have this wonderful conversation that you are, you know, so brilliant and interested and, you know, we bring all this knowledge and brains together and it's, it's just, it's a real treat. It's so fun to associate with good friends like you guys this way, because I can't get on Facebook. And so it's so cool when I can get with you guys on this. That's why I begged Trevor, let me present something I want to see. All these guys <laughs> <do."> yeah. <laughs> so we yeah, didn't have to pull my fun, leg, Carrie. Carrie. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank we'll you. do it again. We'll do it all again. right. Have a great And evening. I'm looking forward to next month that that uh, yeah, Randy. Yeah, have yeah, Randy. Randy. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I don't know if he's still around here right now oh he's on oh yeah yeah he's on yeah randy yeah hearing yours so be sure yeah there you are uh be sure and make sure uh we get the zoom from trevor's yep well i'll be talking to randy about the timing of it we'll probably give it maybe a couple of weeks a few weeks and we'll so when it when work best works for all of us so we can get maximum participation um, but I'm really excited about it. Um, well, and we'll keep going. We'll keep Rathbone going. Too. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Thank you, Tim Rathbone. And thank you, John Anthony Bialiki and all of you. I mean, every one of you, man, you guys are, you guys are a good group of people. Claire, you're awesome. Gazellum, you're an idiot. Oh, <laughs> you're a fellow artist, right? You uh, are. You he is an artist. I'll fight you over that. 
<laughs> yeah, I know you're going to get even with me on that one. Whoops. Well, I'm going to uh, stop the recording end, now so. that we've started descending into <laughs> insults. <laughs> <laughs> All right.